Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. As it's over two years since we launched FuturePod, we thought it would be interesting to check in with our previous guests and see how their work and their thinking may have changed since we last spoke. So we've created a new FuturePod series called The Re-Interviews. Today we are re-interviewing Paul Higgins. Paul is an experienced foresight consultant whose business is geared towards identifying those organisations that want to get on with doing things that will accelerate our path to our 100-year future. We originally interviewed Paul in Podcast 3, Preaching to the Choir, when, amongst many things, he discussed driverless cars, how, through venture philanthropy, he is trying to create an innovative ecosystem that drives a new not-for-profit sector, and also how he was using the tool Wardley Mapping. It's an interesting and enjoyable chat. We also spoke to Paul in Podcast 45 as part of the Foresight in Times of Coronavirus series, when the virus and the responses to it were in their infancy. Welcome back to FuturePod, Paul. Good to be here, Peter. So, Paul, what new things have you learnt since we last spoke and what are you working on now? I guess one of the main things I learned last year during the pandemic and up right until now has been a, a sort of the two polar extremes of humans, the innate goodness and capacity for people to do stuff and the innate stupidity of <laughs> large numbers of us, especially when large numbers of us get together. Yeah. Some listeners to this podcast may, be, may know of Chris Rice, uh, a futurist in the USA who I'm good friends with. Him and I have had quite a few discussions through this process and, you know, one thing we've sort of come to agreement on, on is that if we'd written a scenario depicting what had happened with the coronavirus and the pandemic in the United States, we would have been laughed at and probably locked up somewhere. Um, yeah. And the, just the capacity of people to do some absolutely crazy things which have killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Still, uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think about that Boris Johnson stuff and, you know, so one is just false beliefs and stupidity. The other one is just rank incompetence, I guess. I mean, I think about that Boris Johnson, I can't remember what stage it was exactly, but, you know, telling everyone that he'd all go back to school, uh, it was all going to be okay. And then at five o'clock on, on the first day of school saying, no, it's not, we're all closing all the schools. I mean, it just, uh, anyway, it beggars belief, I guess. But and other people have seen this on the way through, but there's been lots of stories of people you know, doing amazing things and what's happened with health professionals and a whole range of things. And as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, I'm part of a venture philanthropy, a global venture philanthropy movement, uh, and the way the organisations that we fund, finance and assist in trying to do stuff in the community have showed amazing resilience and adaptability in terms of changing what they do and how they do it. So there's been some very strong positives. Do you think the lessons, as you say, the kind of failures of leadership that have been evident, have you noticed that for other groups it's become a point for them to kind of measure their own leadership and their own decision-making? I don't really know, to tell you the truth, but I, mean, I think you know, it's become a sort of issue of partisanship more than anything else. You know, if you look at 
and only what five or six weeks ago, uh, President Bolsonaro in Brazil, when you know, had more than three thousand people die in a day, his response was to tell people to stop whinging. Yeah, and that disconnect from, I, I, I guess it's this sort of it's the difference between a a culture of community and you know we together as opposed to a sort of a culture of independence and my personal rights uh, are the most important thing. Mm. And I think we're, we're a long way away from answering that question in terms of what might emerge from the process in relation to you know, new models of leadership or how people see those things. And I'm, I'm really at a loss to understand some of the stuff around some of the conspiracy theories and things that have emerged in terms of just how people think. So wasn't it Margaret Thatcher who said there is no such thing as society, is we are merely individual or something like that? Yeah, something along those lines. And, you know, I just, anyway, I, I come from a camp that says we, we are a community and a society and we're stronger together when we do stuff and it feeds a whole lot of things I do around equal of opportunity of education and what we do with venture philanthropy and all those sort of things. Because I think we're actually better off, everyone's better off together. And, and one of the things I saw today was, uh, someone tweeting out that no one should be a billionaire. It actually should be not possible. And I think that makes absolute sense. And someone responded to that person by saying, what if someone invented a time machine and went back in and invented a vaccine before we got the pandemic? Shouldn't they be a, you know, a multi-billionaire? I just go, well, if a billion dollars isn't enough for you, there's something wrong with humans, I think. Yeah. So in terms of the second part of the question, I guess, well, answering the first part in more sort of serious detail, I guess, is been trying to learn, I'm not sure how good it'll become, more of this sort of ability to to nudge and nurture and you know, complex systems as opposed to thinking you're the smartest person in the room or that you're right and that you can, you know, you know what the future looks like and how to sort of create it, I guess. It's been tied up in a few sort of things which have come together in the last year for me. So last year in May, I was supposed to be uh, going to Italy to uh, do some training with a company called Boundaryless on platform thinking. That didn't happen, but they pivoted that process and still did it online. Then I ended up in a number of conversations with people, including uh, Sarah Davis, who was at the time uh, head of Philanthropy Australia, talking about what build it back better look like for the not-for-profit sector mm -hmm. part of it was that a lot of the smaller not-for-profits were struggling because they didn't have the balance sheet or reserves or capacity to to survive whereas some of the larger organizations had plenty of reserves and plenty of balance sheet and would survive okay and what did that mean for the shape of the not-for-profit sector you know i i was of the view that some of the not-for-profits that wouldn't survive that process shouldn't. I mean, my view is we've got too many, but the concern was that we would lose a lot of very good smaller ones and the larger ones, which as a whole tend to be more bureaucratic, further from the, you know, the client or the problem, would strengthen their grip on the sort of totality of the sector. And so we started exploring ways that could go, how do we, how do we build something different for that where... You know, that, that, that becomes a question, a false dichotomy. You could have large organisations that were close to the client and you could have small organisations that have much more 
capacity and resilience? And how would you mix the two together in sort of ecosystems that could work together as opposed to being separate? So that's sort of stuff I've been trying to learn and, and do something with. You mentioned in the introduction that I talked about Wardley mapping a couple of years ago and uh, certainly still continue to use that quite a lot in the work that I do. One of the things that's happened in the last 12 months or so is that Simon Wardley himself has organised a distributed research project across the globe, looking at one of the concepts he uses, which is that commoditization of technologies is a sort of point of punctuated change yep. that when you get a commoditization of something like you know computing services like AWS you get a whole lot of flowering of innovation and different ways of doing stuff so what uh, he organized was a number of people across the globe to volunteer to do a distributed research project where we were all separated we actually didn't even know who each other was we knew what our personal group was so I ended up in a group uh, looking at robotics with a, a humanitarian drone guy out of Switzerland and a teacher and consultant out of Moscow and um, a couple of people out of New Zealand another one here in Australia and he replicated that across a whole range of fields so health manufacturing space etc and so he did a massively sort of parallel sort of scanning project looking at what was happening in all those sectors, what was commoditizing, how was it changing practices and those sort of things. So I think I've learned more about how you understand how that sort of can be used to anticipate the future. Yep. And there'll be a report on that out in July, not just a, a summary of all that we've done, but a trying to look at what are the you know 10 or 11 key things that are common across sectors in terms of what's commoditizing and what sort of emergent practices are happening. So, yeah, I continue to practice that wordly mapping and, and continue to find it uh, very useful. What's your sense of the process? I mean, yes, the subject is interesting and I'm sure the outcome will, will make for interesting reading, but what's your sense of that process you went through? Well, I, I, for a long time I've been part of a community out of the US called the Business Innovation Factory Community. Was part of a thing started by a guy called Saul Kaplan. And he talks about a thing called ruckus. So let's go and make a ruckus as in random collision of unusual suspects. Yep. So I've always been very much a fan of, you know, the creating output from rubbing smart people together who don't know each other and have different perspectives and different expertise and different ways of doing things produces, uh, I think, the best kind of thinking. We're now working together and all the groups back together and have a fortnightly sort of discussion when you know, it's not compulsory, but when, when people can attend. The individual small group has been useful. I'm doing work now with two of those people who were in that group. Uh, and the wider group is very useful from that point of view as well. But it's actually produced some really interesting, different, divergent perspectives on things. Hmm. It'd be interesting to see what the final sort of thing looks like because Simon's actually taking what we thought and then doing quite some quite deep research into what's actually happening out in the real world and looking for examples of emergent behaviour. I'm interested in how differences get worked through in an online environment. Well, it worked pretty well, I think. Uh, I mean, one of the things that you know, a lot of people have had concern with about, say, work from home stuff, 
as a result of the pandemic and maybe it being a change that gets embedded for the future is you know how do you how do you do that initial team building how do young people coming into an organization meet everybody and understand the culture and all that sort of stuff but we found that this worked pretty well i mean it was we just met every couple of weeks for an hour an hour and a half uh we got set tasks about scanning for ideas and examples and stuff that was happening and then wardly mapping that so it was a a joint way of trying to look at the landscapes and challenge each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it worked uh, It worked pretty well. The number one sort of thing I try and sort of talk to people about in organisations is how do you do that? How do you make sure that you're not just listening to one set of people inside your organisation? Mm. How do you bring outside views? How do you challenge those, et cetera? So, yeah, it worked pretty well. I think it worked well to separate everyone out and not communicate with the others in the in the first part of the process. So there was some design, obviously, in terms of the way it happened. I mean, was was it the fact that while you were talking to each other, you also were using a tool like the map to actually relate the things you were seeing? Was that important for the cohesion and learning of the group, do you think? Yes, it was. I think it, it gave a reason. One of the reasons I like Waterloo mapping as a thing is it gives you a visual artifact that you can challenge assumptions on. Mm-hmm. And there was quite a bit of variation in the group that I was part of in terms of their knowledge of the mapping at the start. So there was a bit of a process of learning that and learning from each other and how we use it and those sort of things as well. So part of the value was while we we're all volunteers and, you know, the Leading Edge Foundation is a commercial organisation in a sense, but all these people volunteered because we learnt, we got stuff out of it and learnt stuff as part of the process as well as contributing. So yep. that's one of the important parts of, of any sort of community building process is that particularly those ones where you get you know, more out, the more you put in, the more you get back out. Yep. But certainly centering it around that question of, What's commoditizing? What's the emerging behaviors? What are you seeing in your scanning networks? And using that as a central process of thinking about things certainly certainly helped. Good. And the main thing I'm interested in working on at the moment, something that you helped with actually, Peter, um, I got quite interested last year following on that sort of platform thinking work, et cetera, in terms of the concepts of organizational design to think about the future where the process gets embedded in the structure and what emerges from that structure as opposed to people doing strategy themselves. So I end up doing a, uh, another, another training program with that company, Boundaryless, on Hire, the Chinese manufacturing company. Yep. It was really mind-bending from the point of view of I couldn't really understand it. We did sort of four days of five hours and at the end of it I was still I was more confused I think rather than less (laughs) and it took me a long time going back over the material we've been given and the discussions we've had and some of the other stuff Boundaryless had to realize that I was focusing on the organization at the wrong level and what I mean by that is what they do is quite confusing if you look at it from the activity point of view but if you boil it down, essentially what they've done is designed an emergent process for doing strategy. And because it's emergent, 
you really can't understand it from looking at the outcomes. You can only look at it by understanding the design and the structure of how they do stuff. So essentially, and I, I, this is quite simplifying it, but basically they act as a constrained venture capital internal, an internal venture capital system inside Hire itself with the capacity to fund ideas and then those ideas to get plugged into a massive amount of capability. So there's a story in the book, uh, Humanocracy, that talks about their uh, three young guys having an idea for a new type of gaming laptop. And when they got funding for that, and then they went out and did a Kickstarter to get more funding for it. It's sort of weird for an organisation that's 80,000 people to have some of its ideas being put out to Kickstarter. But when they were ready to go with the idea, they were able to put out a call for action to every single other employee basically in the whole of the company to go we're ready with this idea now who wants to be on board we need marketing we need manufacturing we need logistics we need procurement we need sales we need qa we need game design we need you know blah 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 and it all comes together organically rather than any sort of hierarchical structure and as part of that process there was a webinar we were shown from that involved Kevin Nolan from GE Appliances, who is the CEO of GE Appliances, which is now owned by Hire. They got bought in, I think, 2016 or 2017. He explained they took a long time to contextualise and bed down what Hire was doing inside GE Appliances. But someone asked a question, this is paraphrasing, you know, what's, okay, done all that, what's your strategy now? And his response was, I don't know. Mm. The response from the audience was, well, you're the CEO of a $6 billion company, how can you not know? And he goes, because my job isn't to do strategy anymore. No. My job is to cultivate the circumstances and the organisational design in which the people who have contact with the problems and the customers have the best chance of producing something that works in those interactions. And so I don't, we don't do a top-down strategy process anymore. It's all done from the edges of the organisation. Yeah, and I suppose that is the strategy, isn't it? The strategy is to simply say you create structures and relationships and you have rules that allow people to move around according to their interest and passion, and that structure allows the emergence of strategy. Yeah, and I've got, a, I've got a quote somewhere, I think, from Mintzberg about, you know, strategy being a pattern in a stream of decisions. Yep. And I really like that in terms of, you know, that describing that. Anyway, so we started trying to play around with that inside the not-for-profit sector here in Australia. Your involvement was to uh, recommend, I talked to, uh, recommend me to uh, Paul Ronald, the CEO of Save the Children Australia. So we've started the process there of exploring what those sort of things mean for the structure and strategy of Save the Children Australia and also Save the Children globally. And we're in the early days of that and it's not about, you know, there's other sources of information than just the higher model, uh, but we're in the early days of exploring that and seeing what that might mean and how we might experiment and how we might change the not-for-profit sector around the you know, that, that large non-governmental organisation structure globally into a much different way of doing things and a much more impactful way of doing things. 
I dare say it's a very challenging uh, move for organisations who are used to, if I say command and control or sort of you know, clear lines of responsibility and authority, to live with a structure like you're talking about. Yeah, I think so. The Children Australia and Paul's leadership has meant that they're they're much more open than a lot of organisations would be. I'm a bit fond of sort of saying that you know, in terms of transformation, we've and disruption, it's been easier to do bytes than it has been to do atoms, mm. and it's been easier to do stuff where there's less regulation, and it's been easier to do stuff where there's a clear customer and supplier relationship so you know transformation of music or books or whatever where if i'm writing a book and can distribute that and someone's buying that yes it's a lot easier to disrupt those sort of relationships whereas you get into stuff like education or healthcare or the global humanitarian sector etc there's a lot of interlocking parts between the people that are putting money in and the people that are getting the benefit and so that makes it a lot more difficult to disrupt or change. And it doesn't have the discipline of the commercial market in terms of, you know, burning platforms from profit and loss and those sort of things. I, I don't think it should have. I mean, you're saying there that, that if you've got multiple sets of stakeholders with different outcomes they're, they're seeking from the system, then the you know, model of emergent strategy is more challenging in those situations because people have quite fundamentally different ideas of what strategy would result in. Yeah, and there's some interesting models out there. I mean, it was just been an interesting coincidence of serendipity, I guess. But the uh, so one of the guys in the Wardley Mapping Research Group on Robotics I spoke about before, Patrick Meyer, runs a company called a not-for-profit company called We Robotics, and over the last three years they've scaled humanitarian and localised drone use. So they now have what they call an inclusive network where they have 32 what they call flying labs around the world that are locally led and locally run. And We Robotics forms a sort of a a central hub to it as a not-for-profit themselves. But they've gone from zero to 32 of those in 32 different countries in the space of three years. Mm. And each of those has grown as well. So not just grown the network, but the actual components of the network have grown at the same time. So there are models and possibilities out there about how you go about doing that. And one of the great privileges of my life is that I now spend most of my time trying to work with and help people who are trying to do something to benefit their communities. Mm. And, you know, you get smart people who are trying to do good things. Why wouldn't you do that until you uh, trip over and fall in your own grave? It's interesting you're saying that given where we started the conversation with, with the, the failures of governance and leadership in the COVID responses in some so-called sophisticated countries. I wonder if kind of a parallel between what you were talking about then and what you've seen happen with COVID. I'm not sure about parallels. It more goes back to the beginning of this conversation, I guess, which is I think I've seen the best of people and the worst of people. Yeah. But I think the best of people is more embedded in that sort of community network. How do we do stuff together? But, you know, it's also the worst as well because, you know, those 
those conspiracy theories and those networks that are driven out of uh, ill intent uh, take those same tools and drive pretty hard with them as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's all about intent and community in my mind rather than you know, the tools themselves. It's not the structure without the morals and the values of the people. Yeah, I remember, you know, going back a long time, you know, those <clears throat> Stephen Covey stuff around, you know, principles of leadership and stuff. And you can talk about teamwork and you can talk about a whole range of things, but you can apply that to a bank robbing team as well as you can to, a, you know, a not-for-profit trying to cure cancer or something. So it's all about the ethics and the values and the intent. And, you know, that translates itself into those complex environments. How do you understand and shape intent in a large-scale complex environment or network? I think it's a, a fascinating question. My friend Saul Kaplan, who started off the Business Innovation Factory community, again talks about self-organising purposeful networks. Yep. And I think you can talk about a whole lot of tools and capacities, I think, are producing the capacity for those sort of networks to to be much more capable than they were in the past. And, you know, you look at the craziness of the GameStop sort of share trading thing this year, I don't think that's really all that interesting in itself, but what's driving that behaviour and the tools that were used and the capacities it gives people to come together uh, and do stuff, I think, is going to be one of the defining sort of characteristics of the next decade and from a leadership point of view or what it, you know small influence i can have in that process it's more about how do you you know think about working with working for together with those sort of networks and building their capacities is going to be the best way for me and i think the best way for a lot of people to you know help with those leadership challenges and I think there's going to be more placed on the individual in those sort of things rather than political power structures, in my view. And you know, I got asked to talk to a group of councils the other day, and you know, them, them they always talk about how they've got less resources and struggling for money and all this sort of stuff, which is true. But I don't think any of those people have really thought through enough the capacity for them to facilitate and catalyse the, their communities to do stuff that harnesses a whole lot of resources that they don't have in their, their organisation themselves. So that, that's where I sort of see the next decade of me doing stuff, but also I think it's going to be an incredibly important part of how we build a, a decent community and society over the next decade as well in the face of these challenges of human behavior and leadership problems and stuff like that and you know i'm a quite a big cynic around sort of blockchain and all those sort of processes but i think there's the possibility that that might play quite a large role in this uh, in the right way as well but again it's about the human behaviors and what that does for people's capacity not the technology itself I mean, the themes that are coming through in what you're talking is it's obviously this aspect that, you know, strategy that emerges from networks, relationships, and the values that sit at the core of the actual networks themselves and groups of people in some ways 
can be more adaptive or a better fit or anticipate better the conditions than traditional top-down or intelligence-driven ideas of what is the best thing to do? Back in the 90s, I ran for parliament, a federal parliament here in Australia. And I had friends of mine saying, you know, why are you doing that? That's crazy. It's all, you know, and this is 20-odd years ago, right? It's all uh, breaking apart and useless and why are you bothering to spend your time doing that? And when I spoke to those people, they were all doing politics themselves. It just wasn't party politics and it wasn't government. It was about, you know, their local parent-teacher association at their school or their local sporting club or something they were doing to volunteer for a not-for-profit organisation or whatever it might be. And what I kind of realised is they were all operating at the level they thought they could move stuff. And they just didn't feel they could move stuff at a political level. I think in the intervening 20 years and where we are poised for the next 10, that touch point at which people can move stuff is changing. I think it's becoming there's becoming a greater capacity to for those touch points to move stuff. And that, yeah, we've got to, as individuals, we've got to go, we, we can play one tiny part in that. And as long as our intent is to push that in the right direction, then we have to trust that the collective action will move generally in the right direction as well. And we have to put away this sort of model of some sort of mythic heroic leadership is required. It's more about us all making a contribution in our own way. I think what you're saying is that people will make a contribution in the sense that people will be driven by their own values and enthusiasms and and passions, so to speak. At the time where we're seeing people having, arguably through technology and and networks, people actually have more reach and more scope, it's almost ironic that at the same time that is going on, the uh, the traditional places that thought that they were the leaders or they were the or they had their hands on the levers, some of those are the ones who have failed to be effective in the current pandemic conditions. Yeah, what's that saying? You know, that all that uh, evil men need is that good men do nothing. Mm. Probably need to degender that in a sense. But you know, the the sort of tools I'm talking about and capabilities are available to everybody. And so, the people who don't have good intent don't take them up and and use them. Then uh, those that have ill intent will will profit from them. But I'm very optimistic, uh, despite my. Uh, negative views about some of the human behaviour of the last 12 months. I'm generally very optimistic about human capacity and contribution and the vast majority of people are actually good and want to do good. Yeah, no, I agree. I see time and time again younger people, certainly when they're given a chance to to step up and take leadership and try to actually to drive the system and and bring impact on, on social problems, they generally... Um, they're generally enthusiastic about believing they can make a difference. Yeah, and at Social Venture Partners, we're, we're, I'm, I'm the lead partner for a process we're assisting uh, an organisation called Little Dreamers, which is focused on helping young people between 4 and 25 that are caring for a family member. So there's a whole range of examples, but, you know, someone who's a young person but is caring for a brother or a sister or parent uh, that has a disability or whatever that may be 
And uh, Maddie, who founded that, basically had the idea and founded it in a sense when she was 16. And she's 27 now, I think, and it has 42 staff. Oh. And it's helping thousands of kids across the country and just go, how can you not be optimistic when people are doing that sort of stuff? Yeah, good. Thanks, for Thanks, Paul, for taking some time to have a chat to the folks at, at FuturePod. Thank you for listening to my ramblings, Peter. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.